The word of God from Daniel chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Daniel repents for the sins of Israel. Listen closely, my God, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we are not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision, reached me in my extreme weariness about, in the, time, about the time of the evening offering. He gave me this explanation. Daniel, I've come now to give you understanding. At the beginning of your petitions, an answer went out, and I have come to give, you, give it, for you are treasured by God. So consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, the ruler, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. After those 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war. Desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, friends. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. I'd invite you to take a copy of the scriptures. There's one underneath the seat in front of you. And turn to page 792, 793 actually, where we will be looking at this passage from Daniel 9. Before we get into that, life is complicated. So we've had lots of tech complications this morning. There have been software issues, there have been computer issues, and I'm just so thankful for Tim and Matt and Bradley in the back that have been working so hard to make sure we have what we need on the screens to be able to worship together. But life's just complicated. Things are complicated. Maybe that hit home to you this week as you celebrated with family over the holidays or didn't celebrate with family. It's a pretty frequent occurrence to have this sort of conversation after a holiday. How was your holiday? It was good. What did you do? Spent time with family. Well, how was that? Well, it's complicated. Relationships are complicated. Life is complicated. Technology is complicated. And friends, our text today, guess what? It's complicated. Sam Storms is a pastor in Oklahoma, and he writes this. One might well argue that Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is both the most complex and the most crucial text in either testament bearing on the subject of biblical prophecy. 
its complexity is questioned only by those who have not studied it. Complex, crucial, complicated. That sums up Daniel 9 in a nutshell. And so this morning we have to avoid both information overload on the one hand, diving so deep that we lose all sense of connection to life because, let's face it, knowledge just puffs up. So we need to avoid that, but on the other hand, we want to avoid simply scratching the surface and not dealing with the text as it's been given to us. So the goal of this message is not information. In fact, plan to still have questions about this text at the end of the message. And guess what? We'll, we'll plan to have a brief Q&A after the service here at the front if you have questions. We'll do that, okay? But our goal in this message is not information, but formation, spiritual formation. So with that in mind, as our children enjoy their program in the wall, uh, behind the wall, would you pray with me that God would form us through his word? Lord Jesus, our text is complicated, our lives are complicated, our world is complicated. But you are the creator, the sustainer, and you are the restorer. Your gospel changes and transforms everything. So, Lord Jesus, we ask in these moments, bring order to our chaos, clarity to our confusion, simplicity to what's complicated. Through this text before us, would you spiritually form and reform us? May your spirit move among us so that there is no doubt that you are the one preaching as you demonstrate your power. And Lord Jesus, we ask that at the end of the day, you would be what we remember. It's your name that we pray this. Amen. Daniel 9. 20 to 27. Let's break this down into bite-sized portions and then trust that unlike last week's turkey, it's not going to put us to sleep, okay? So here we go. Number one, the intercession of a man of God. Number two, a narrative of the plan of God. Number three, a revelation of the purposes of God. And finally, we'll end with an invitation to the people of God. Okay. Number one, in intercession, or the intercession of a man of God. This is entirely review from last week, okay? So Brittany read these words for us, but let's revisit them. Verse 20, while I, that's Daniel, was speaking, praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my petition before the Lord my God concerning what? Concerning the holy mountain of my God, while I was praying, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the first vision back in the earlier portions of Daniel, he reached me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening sacrifices. So what you should notice based on these verses is that whatever comes next is an answer to prayer. It's a complicated answer to prayer, yes, but it's an answer to prayer. The secret of verses 20 to 27 is in verses 1 through 19. So let's just briefly remind ourselves of where we stood last week in looking in the first 19 verses. Okay? Remember that, or remember first the context of Daniel 9. God made a covenant with Abraham, 
to give his descendants the land of Palestine. Hundreds of years after that, God delivered Abraham's descendants from slavery and oppression in Egypt through the Exodus. And he entered into a covenant with them. The covenants included blessings for Israel if they were faithful to it, but also curses if they were disobedient. And God brought them back to the land of Palestine, Israel, in the Exodus. But Daniel, one of Abraham's descendants through Jacob and Judah, is writing not from the land of Israel, but from Babylon. Why Babylon, not Palestine? Well, number two, the calamity. God remained faithful to the covenant after years of Israel's unfaithfulness, and he brought curses, the curses of the covenant, upon his people. And that brings us to the cause of Daniel's intercession, and it goes back to Jeremiah's prophecy that the exile promised to Israel, if they disobeyed, that exile would last 70 years. And as Daniel reads his Bible, sees that in the prophet Jeremiah, recognizes, oh wait, 70 years is almost up. So Daniel confesses Israel's sin to God, using the same words of Solomon when he dedicated the temple. We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. Okay, before we go further, let me point out three more details from Daniel's intercession. Daniel repeatedly uses language that points us to three threads that you can trace throughout the Bible. Those three threads are these, covenant, exodus, and temple. Covenant, exodus, temple. These flow nearly all the way through the Old Testament and they come together in this text. Keep those words in mind, covenant, exodus, temple, We'll hit them briefly at the end. Okay, so there's a review. This is the intercession of the man of God. If you want to hear more, go on and listen to last week's message on the first 19 verses. But now, let's turn our attention to number two, a narrative of the plan of God. Now, I played some basketball growing up, and I know what you're thinking Based upon my height, you're probably a bit shocked that I never made it beyond high school. I was surprised too. I don't know what happened. But if you've ever played a game of pig or horse on a basketball court, you know you have the option of calling your shot to make it more difficult on the next person. For instance, instead of just saying that the shot has to go in by making the shot, you could call bank. And if you bank it off the backboard and it goes in, the person behind you must not only make the shot, they need to bank it as well. You have called your shot. In at least one game of pool, one version of the game of pool, you have to call the pocket that you're going to put the eight ball in in order for it to count. And if you put it in another pocket by mistake, you lose. Babe Ruth is said to have called a home run shot in the 1932 World Series. You can go back and watch the videotape. He pointed twice to what may have been the center field flagpole before crushing a 440-foot to 490-foot home run. As a human, calling your shot 
indicates a high degree of confidence in yourself and in your ability, and maybe just a bit of bravado and showmanship as well. But for God, calling his shot is simply a grace gift to mankind. If I can use a really crude analogy, verses 25 to verses 27 is God calling his shot. He is narrating his plan. And when God calls his shot, he's demonstrating his absolute sovereignty in the, fa- in the affairs of humanity. And he's giving his people basis for assurance in his character. God has put his own reputation and character on the line in Daniel 9. And if the called shot fails, well, then his character has failed. But if God accurately calls a shot, then it bolsters the confidence and faith of his followers. Okay, now into the text. In verses 20 to 27, there are two main figures that God, as God narrates his plan. The first is a cut-off, anointed one. And the second is a destructive and desolated, desolating coming ruler. He's called the abomination of desolation in verse 27. So two figures, but then six events. There are six events laid out for us in these verses. Number one, you have the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Look at verse 25. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to what? What is the decree? The decree is to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. From that until an anointed one, the ruler or prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Don't get lost in the weeks. We'll get into that in a minute. It, Jerusalem, will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, but in difficult times. So the first event is the rebuilding of Jerusalem. The second one is the cutting off of the anointed one, verse 26. After these 62 weeks, don't worry about the weeks right now, after the 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Third event, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, verse 26. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come with a flood, and until the end, there will be war desolations are decreed and then events number four and five a covenant is made and worship is ended temple worship is ended verse 26 the coming ruler verse 27 will make a firm covenant with many for one week but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering and then number six the desolator will be destroyed that is the sixth event Verse 27, the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Okay, lots of details, lots of weeks, lots of events. Hang with me. Like some of you, I grew up in what is known as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a way of reading the Bible that stresses the discontinuity between the Old Testament and and the New Testament, rather than the continuity between the two. If you have read or watched the Left Behind series, you have been immersed in dispensational theology. Now, dispensationalism comes to Daniel 9 
as the basis for much of its theology of the end times. And they divide this prophecy into two parts, equaling precisely 490 years. 483 years plus seven years. Dispensationalism says that everything after the anointed one being cut off is in the future. Future to us, not just future to Daniel. Future to us. And will take place during a literal seven-year tribulation. Now, on the whole, dispensationalists love our Lord. Period. They love the Bible. Period. I used to be one. But, I believe dispensationalism dispensationalism, I can't even say it anymore, is mistaken with Daniel 9. Their interpretation is at best shaky. So is there a way of looking at Daniel 9, understanding this text that doesn't place more than 2,000 plus years between 26a and 26b? Between the cutting off of the anointed one, the death of Jesus Christ, and as they would interpret it, a seven-year literal tribulation? And I believe the answer is yes. There is a way of reading this text which fits with the patterns we see in the rest of the book of Daniel. So let's just start asking the question. Let's walk through those six events that we just identified in this text and ask the question, have we seen them in history? Okay? Number one, was Jerusalem rebuilt? Yes, a mere 23 years after this prophecy. 516 B.C., under the leadership of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel. You can go to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and read all about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were three prophets during this time period as well. So a significant portion of the latter part of the Old Testament is dealing with the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. Event number two, was an anointed one cut off? Well, the word anointed one is fascinating. It's the word Mashiach. We get the word Messiah from it. And the Greek word Christos, from which we get Christ, is a Greek translation of this Hebrew word. So when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. Was the anointed one cut off? Yes. You can read about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 1, and chapter 53. Third event. Was Jerusalem, the rebuilt Jerusalem, and the temple destroyed? Yes. A.D. 70. As prophesied by Jesus in Matthew 24... Mark 13, and Luke 21. In that text, Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate. He was speaking to the people of Israel. What house is he talking about? He's talking about the temple. Titus was the general who destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. He later became the emperor of Rome. Don't confuse him with the book of Titus in the Bible, two different Tituses. Okay? You can travel to Rome today and see the Arch of Titus 
which was built commemorating Titus's defeat of Jerusalem. He sacked the temple, took all of the items of the temple with him back to Rome. So numbers four and five, events number four and five. Was a covenant made and temple worship halted? Yes. Without a temple, the sacrificial system was abolished. Never again to date to be restored. Since AD 70. Number six, was the destroyer, the desolator, destroyed? Yes. Titus was a human ruler, just like every other human ruler in the book of Daniel, who died. He died, in fact, in, I believe it was 79 A.D. And if we take him as a part representing the whole of the Roman Empire. Do you remember that from the earlier chapters of Daniel? Part for the whole representative? Well, the entire Roman Empire disintegrated and was destroyed as well and no longer exists. Now, Daniel experienced this vision that we're reading about in the first year of Darius or Darius, which was 539 B.C., So all of the events he just prophesied, or rather was given to him in a prophecy by Gabriel, all of those events are future to Daniel by anywhere from 23 years to 600 years. And all of them, as we look back at history, have been fulfilled to the letter. So what do we see concerning these two figures, the anointed one and the desolating destroyer, and these six events? Well, can I go back to the illustration? What do we see? We see God calling his shot and nailing it to the detail. Okay. Take a deep breath. Is your head spinning? This text is complex and complicated, but the payoff is huge. So we've looked at the intercession of a man of God, the narrative of the plan of God, but what is the purpose of these events? What is God looking to accomplish as he calls his shots? That brings us to number three, the revelation of the purposes of God. Now, the purposes are found back in verse 24. We skip 24. So let's read it again. Gabriel gives Daniel this explanation. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Okay, before we get into purposes, let's talk about the weeks. Okay, y'all are dying to talk about the weeks, I'm sure. What is the deal with 70 weeks and 69 weeks and 63 weeks and 62 weeks? What's the deal? Well, the purposes of God include a time period, 70 weeks. Remember, the judgment of God upon Israel in the exile was prophesied by Jeremiah to be how many years? 70 years. 
Now, it's appropriate to take the 70 years as a round number. If someone asks me how many members Sojourn has, I will most likely respond 60. However, we actually have 57 members. So am I being dishonest when I say 60? Of course not. I'm using numbers the way we normally use numbers. When we don't need an exact calculation or a specific measurement, it's normal to speak in terms of rounded, approximate numbers. The Bible does this. Psalm 90, the psalmist says, our lives last 70 years. What person in their right mind would go to that text and say, well, see, the psalmist is wrong because I know someone that lived to be 70 years in a day or 72 years. Or I know plenty of people that died before they were 65. The psalmist was wrong. Well, no, we understand what the psalmist is doing. It's a round number, an approximation. In fact, he adds after that, or if we are strong, 80 years. Is the psalmist suggesting that everyone drops dead at 70 and in one day? Of course not. The context makes it clear. Okay, Isaiah, where are you going with this? 70 years, a round number, an estimate, an approximation. That understanding protects us from reading the 70 weeks in a woodenly, literal way. We can read it like normal language, which is different than reading it literally. In a book filled with symbolism... Shouldn't we expect symbolism? So what might the symbolism be in 70 weeks? Well, remember, the people of Israel were given a weekly Sabbath day of rest. One day in seven. Five, six, seven. Seven. The land was given an every seven year Sabbath of rest. No agricultural work to be done in the land on the seventh year. Let the land rest on the eighth year or the first year. You can farm it again. You can read about that in Leviticus 25 verses 1 through 7. But there was another Sabbath built into the Jewish calendar. And you can find it in Leviticus 25 immediately after the every seven year Sabbath of rest. But this time in verse 8. And here's what Leviticus 25 8 says. You are to count seven sabbatical years, seven times seven years, so that the time period of the seven sabbatical years amounts to 49. Then you are to sound a trumpet loudly in the seventh month. On the tenth day of the month, you will sound it throughout your land on the day of what? The day of atonement. You are to consecrate the 50th year and proclaim freedom in the land for all its inhabitants. It will be, he says, your jubilee. When each of you is to return to his property and each of you to his clan, the 50th year will be your jubilee. It is to be holy to you because it is the jubilee. So in this 49th year, when the jubilee is declared, slaves are freed. Tribal inheritance that has been sold is restored to the rightful owners. 
and the clans of Israel celebrated. And when did it begin? It began on the 49th year, on the Day of Atonement. So let's go back to Daniel 9. Let's do some math. I know, that's the worst thing to say on a Sunday morning. Let's do some math. Another way of saying 70 weeks is what? 70 sets of seven. Isn't a week just a set of seven days? Okay, so week, set of seven. 70 sets of seven. 70 sets of seven comes to 490. 490 is a tenfold jubilee. A jubilee to the tenth power, to the tenth degree. The symbolism of the 70 weeks is potent. God has purposed to bring about a jubilee to the tenth degree upon his people. A jubilee when slaves would be set free. A jubilee when inheritance would be enjoyed. A jubilee when the people of God would celebrate together. The ultimate day of atonement. And what are the purposes of God providing this jubilee to the tenth degree? Well, he says 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And then Gabriel lists these purposes. The purposes of the tenfold jubilee to the tenth degree are to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Six purposes. The number symbolism is stacking up. So seven is the number of completion, of perfection, of rest. Six days of creation, and then a day of rest. Six days of work, and then a day of rest and worship and celebration. Six years of agricultural activity, and then a Sabbath rest for the land. Seven sets of seven years, and then a year of jubilee. Six purposes to be fulfilled in that jubilee. Seventy sets of seven, and then what? What more is to be done? There's nothing more to be accomplished in the purposes of God except a jubilee to the 10th degree. Eternal rest. Eternal freedom. Eternal celebration. Eternal worship. So let's put these six purposes into two categories just to discuss them briefly. Number one, to deal with sin. Number two, to dawn the celebration. One, to deal with sin. Remember, what is the context of this complicated answer to prayer? The context is an intercession. Daniel has been praying that God would forgive the iniquity of Israel. And God's answer is, oh, guess what? I'm not just going to deal with Israel's sin. Y'all, I'm about to do something that you can't imagine. You know that whole little 49th year thing I had built into the law of Moses? Well, I'm going to do that to the 10th degree. I'm going to bring out this crazy situation and put a stop to sin completely. I'm going to end transgression, end iniquity. Now, our translation says put a stop to sin. 
The underlying text says to finish transgression. Guess what? We've seen that before in our Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 15, right before the Exodus. Sorry, not right before the Exodus. God is speaking to Abraham about the Exodus. God says to Abraham, know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them. That's Egypt. They'll be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. That is the Exodus. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here. That's the land of Israel to the promised land. Why? The iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Daniel is expecting his readers to read Daniel 9 and hyperlink in their minds back to Genesis 15. A promise, a prophecy of the first exodus. What is Daniel doing? He is setting up in our minds a second exodus. God's patience towards the rebellious nations in the first exodus was on display. He waited 400 years before he sent judgment. God will put an end to transgression and rebellion. He'll atone for iniquity when sin has reached its full measure. And Gabriel is pointing Daniel to a second exodus, a return from exile. But it's in the context of a tenfold jubilee. Okay. I know we're in the weeds, y'all. I know we are. This is not a normal Sunday morning sermon. But we cannot just gloss over this like it doesn't exist. Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2 prophesies that after the exile, which is what Daniel is experiencing right now, sin would be pardoned. And how does the prophet Isaiah say that sin will be pardoned? Well, a righteous servant is going to appear who will be crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. So this tenfold jubilee in God's plan will be first to deal with sin and second to dawn the celebration. Let's just briefly cover these three purposes. Gabriel says to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now remember, Daniel's been studying the prophet Jeremiah. He's already told us that. So Jeremiah 23 would have been on his mind. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. The celebration would dawn when the king would come. The righteous branch, who is himself righteous and who is able also to bring others into that righteousness. Which is exactly what Jesus did. And this is all in the context of the failures of the old covenant through the unfaithfulness of Israel. They needed someone who could secure their righteousness. Who could secure their faithfulness. And guess what? You and I do too. In the language of the Old Testament, they needed someone who could circumcise their hearts 
turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh capable of obeying. Next, he says to seal up vision and prophecy. In the ancient Near East, to seal something by an authority communicated completion, certainty, finality. For vision and prophecy to be sealed is for that vision and prophecy to be completed, fulfilled, ratified. God's purposes in this tenfold jubilee, this jubilee to the tenth degree, is to fulfill all of his promises and all of his prophecies. And isn't this exactly what we see in the New Testament? Paul says, in Jesus Christ, all, everything is yes and amen concerning the promises of God. So Sam Storm says this, the period of preparation and hype characterized by the visions with the prophet, which the prophets received and proclaimed, they'll be sealed up because its purposes have been completed. It will no longer be needed since the messianic age has come. Friends, we are in the dawn of the messianic age. Are we in the end times? Absolutely. Is it because of what you read in the newspaper? No. What you read in the newspaper is because we're in the end times. The end times dawned when the righteous branch came. The prophecy, the vision has been sealed up and ratified. The jubilee to the 10th degree has been inaugurated. We have entered into it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have entered into this experience. Final purpose, to anoint the most holy place. Remember, Daniel's concern in his prayer is that the sanctuary is desolate. And after this, the Temple of Solomon, or rather, before this, the Temple of Solomon had been des destroyed and sacked, 586 B.C. All the articles of the Temple were taken to Babylon. After this, Cyrus, Darius, is going to send Israel back to the land of Israel with all of those stolen pieces from the Temple to rebuild Jerusalem and the Temple. But guess what? That Temple is also going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to again be destroyed. Friends, this is where a whole Bible theology and understanding of the Bible as one continuing story bears fruit. The temple was never an end in and of itself. In other words, the temple was never meant to be the final reality. So friends, we don't need to look for another physical temple. It was a shadow, a picture well, a picture of what? James Hamilton helps us here. The temple was a microcosm, a small-scale version of the world God made in which he would be present, known, served, worshipped. The temple was a preview of the new heaven and the new earth. A second temple was rebuilt, 516. It was destroyed 70 A.D. So friends, did God's purposes fail? Does God have to go back and fix something, make sure a certain, I don't know, mosque on a certain temple mount in a certain city in Jerusalem gets taken down so he can build his physical temple again, so he's faithful to his promises? 
No! The temple was a shadow of something so much better. The temple is what bridged God and man, where God met man and where man met God. And where does God meet man? The person of Jesus Christ. You've probably heard somewhere from some well-meaning Christian that a temple must be rebuilt in order for God's plan to be fulfilled. But that is simply not true. God does not require a physical temple anymore. The final sacrifice has been offered. And it wasn't a small lamb. It was Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who shed his blood on a mountain for you and for me. Our atonement has come. God's purposes are to bring the entire cosmos back into relationship with himself, anointing it, setting it apart for himself, to bring the world back to the Edenic state in which God is present, known, served, and worshipped. That is where we are headed. Christian, that is the story of which you are a part. Skeptic, non-Christian, that is the story of which you can be a part today simply by embracing Jesus. You've just made your way through one of the most complex and crucial texts of the Old Testament. So what should we do with it? That brings us to number four, the invitation to the people of God. In our entitlement, we tend to view God as vindictive, as judgy. We tend to view God a bit like a spoiled child throwing a tantrum because no one's listening to him. Even if we would never express this out loud. But is this an accurate view of who God is? After the failure of Adam and Eve to trust the goodness and grace of God, after the continuous failure of humanity in the centuries since to acknowledge God, after the years of stubbornness on Israel's part, the chosen people of God, why would God even desire rebels like you and me to experience a jubilee to the 10th degree? Why? Friends, it's because of who he is. And he's told us as much. Exodus 34. The Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Do you see what God is doing here? He is preaching to Moses himself. In the words of Lewis Allen, God is always preaching himself as the God of love. He has no greater message, no other gospel, no greater purpose. And friends, in a terrible tragedy due to the fall, our minds 
warp God's character. In our entitlement, we hear any idea, any word of God judging sin, and we immediately view him as vindictive and harsh. But friends, in reality, punishment separated from God in hell is what you and I as rebels against God deserve. But is that where the story ends? No. God, in our unfaithfulness and our rebellion, says in effect, Oh, dearly beloved, you haven't seen anything yet. I have a plan, not just to forgive sin, but to bring all my people and my entire creation into a tenfold jubilee, a jubilee to the tenth degree, the like of which the world has never seen and cannot comprehend. And how will he accomplish that? Through his son, the eternal king, Jesus, the Messiah, the cut off anointed one, who in his own words says this, I came to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim what? The year of the Lord's favor. Believer, you through Jesus, have entered in to the very year of God's favor. Now and for all of eternity. A jubilee to the tenth degree. So if you are not yet a Christian, this is an invitation to you into the people of God. In Jesus, you can find, you will find all the meaning you could ever hope for. Embracing Jesus places you in the grand story of history as you find in Jesus your identity, your purpose, your meaning, meaning your hope, your healing, and your forgiveness. And no other meta-narrative meta for life can answer the core questions of life like Jesus. He's the answer you've been looking for. So Christian directed towards you are you living life as if god has brought you into the jubilee to the 10th degree i'm not asking if all your problems and annoyances and trials and suffering has disappeared that's that's not the point as we wait for the return of our lord as one tv script writer has said bones and hearts will still break but Christian, this dawning of the jubilee to the 10th degree in Christ means, guess what? God has made with you a new covenant. God has brought you out of your sins in a new exodus. And God is building us into a new temple where we will dwell with God for all of eternity. Yes, being online is complicated. But you don't need a degree in theology to worship Jesus as the giver of a better covenant, as the leader of a greater exodus, as the builder of a new temple. As we sang last week, though the world may number me among the foolish, I think Jesus Christ is all I need to know. Jesus suffered and paid blood the lowest of the low. Hallelujah. Amen. That's me. I'm one of those. Let's pray.
for the complicated answer to prayer you gave to Daniel so many years ago. We thank you that we get to view it from the lens of history and see how you meticulously fulfilled your promises. Father, thank you that in Christ, all of your promises, all of your prophecy, all of the vows you have made are yes and amen. So, Father, give us grace to believe that we are your beloved children through Jesus Christ, that you love us, that you've set us free, that you have welcomed us into your favor, favor not just now, but for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.